My, oh my. We had badass Bible women last week. This week is badass Bible men. So we, heard, we have more men this week, so maybe the <laughs> last week it looked like it was a room full of women. So um, anyway, we're in the book of Judges, and we're in a series called Jesus Christ the Prequel, where we're going through an overview of the Old Testament and how God was working throughout the history of human beings. And in this time of Judges, this was a time before Israel had a king because God's heart and desire was for, for God to be their king, not for them to have a, a king. And so in the period of Judges, God raised up men and a woman, Deborah, uh, to lead Israel as, as judges, as people that had the spirit of God, that were hearing from God to rule over Israel. And it was kind of up and down because they would come back to God and then the judge, whoever it was, would die and then they'd kind of go off and worship other gods and there would be chaos and their lives would be a mess and then they'd get desperate and cry out for God again. And God would raise somebody else up to come and minister to them. So that's sort of the up and down throughout the book of Judges. And last week I, I talked about some really powerful women that turned up in the book of Judges. That, but the overall theme that's really interesting as you look at Judges is that over and over God caused great things to happen with people that had oftentimes disadvantages in a worldly way. That God did phenomenal, powerful things in people that didn't have, yeah, they, they weren't, they, they had disadvantages. Like Deborah, a woman was a culturally not a positive thing. Like Ehud, who was a left-handed man, uh, you know, and on and on and on. And so we're going to do, talk about two men tonight that did phenomenally things like crazy things that probably any man would feel really cool if they could do, you know, because it's just sort of Gideon um, who had a miraculous military, uh, military victories and triumphs that we're going to read about where it was against all odds. And Samson, who a lot of people have heard about that had phenomenal physical strength and did some badass things that um, would you know, if you're a guy, I mean, probably even if you're a girl, you might think that that was cool. But definitely, I think most men would think it's pretty cool. So I want to take you, I want to kind of give you a little bit of background before this. It says in Judges 6 that the Midianites really impoverished in a, in a really horrible way the, the Israelites, and they cried out to the Lord. And God said, I set you free, and he kind of gives them the history over and over again, but I told you not to be worshiping other gods, and you didn't listen. So God's like a little frustrated, but he sends uh, an angel to Gideon in Judges 6 in 14, and what I kind of like in terms of the opening went before we read about the great things that Gideon did, it says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him, Gideon, and said, 
Go in the strength you have and save Israel, Israel out of the Midian, Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Oh, and I forgotten, forgot to say that it says that, it, there, it says that there were so many Midianites that the people were like, like locusts and that the camels were like the sand of the sea. So it was just like, and that they were just wiping out Israel from all their food, from all of their, their um, livestock, everything, just destroying Israel. So it's a pretty dire situation. And uh, there's a lot of Midianites. And it says, so the Lord says that, and I am not, am I not sending you? In verse 15, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family, which is kind of cool. So it's on the surface level, Gideon's saying, I, I'm not the guy. Like, God's calling him to great things, and he's saying, are you kidding me? I, I, like, you know, I can't. I don't have that much going for me. I come from a lousy tribe, and I'm not only that, but the lousiest in my family even. I'm like the least smart, the least strong, the least talented. Do you know what I'm saying? How many times has God called you into something great and you've said, who, me? I, I, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not whatever. You know, if you think about that, where we've had doubts about ourselves when God wanted us to take us someplace great. God is not limited by our weaknesses. God can work mightily in any person. I don't care what you come to the table. I don't care what your family's from. God can work mightily in anyone that is willing and seeks him out and do phenomenal, miraculous things, as we're going to see in the story of Gideon. So stop telling yourself you can't and you're not good enough because God can make it happen. The, um, then what happens is the Lord tells him, that he, well, first, actually, Gideon's kind of sweet. He says, okay, if, you know, don't leave. He said, I want to give you an offering if you're really there. And so he makes an offering, which is kind of a cool heart that Gideon, right after hearing the voice of the Lord, says, I want to give to you, Lord, and make an offering to you. So he goes and prepares an offering and brings it to the Lord. And an angel of the Lord comes and answers by fire and burns the sacrifice up, which was oftentimes the way that God demonstrated that he's accepting a sacrifice. Fire was a way of purifying. It was a way of God's acceptance. And so the God answers by fire, burns up the sacrifice, um, and it's amazing. Anyway, then God tells him to tear down the altars to Baal and the Asherah pole that belongs to his father. His father is worshiping Baal. And he says, first job up, you need to destroy your own father's, uh, you know, idol of Baal and Asherah pole. And so Gideon's a little nervous about that, but he does it, but at night, just so that uh, <laughs> nobody gets to see him do it, because he knows it's going to make a lot of people pretty angry. And then his dad, actually, it's kind of funny, because people come and they see, you know, the, um, the idol and the Asherah pole cut down, and, um, and his dad says, well, if Baal's big enough, he can take care of himself. And so they actually name, uh, they give um, Gideon the nickname Jerub, Jerub Baal, which means let Baal contend with him. So that's Gideon's little nickname. And then um, 
Then it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he sends messengers to all the people to, uh, and calls them to arms. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 36. And this is a great thing in terms of Gideon's heart. Gideon says in verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung it out and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So this is, there's some really kind of cool principles in here. If you have doubts, guess where you need to take them? To God. You ever struggle in faith, whether God can do it? Guess the place to take that is take it to God and ask God to help your faith. Mind you, I know the New Testament says you can't ask for a sign because God says he gave us Holy Spirit, so he expects us to seek him out more and not just ask him to do parlor tricks for us. But in this time, there was, you know, people didn't have the gift of Holy Spirit. And so, but this was an appropriate thing for Gideon to come and say, I need some reassurance of this. And so then he asks God, what he does is he says, okay, that was good. That helped. And he said, please don't get mad at me, God. But can you make the ground all dewy and the fleece dry? And then, then I'll know. And so God does that for him too. And he says, okay. So he's ready to go and uh, go, after, go after the Midianites. And then we're going to pick it up in chapter 7 and verse 2. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left (laughs) while 10,000 remained. So which kind of really cool, I love, and we're going to see this over and over again, that God told Gideon get ri- like to, to get rid of people in order to have the victory. And you don't see, there's so many things in this where you don't see Gideon, for one, after he hears the Lord that says, okay, I've given you the victory, that he's concocting all of his battle plans. Normally, isn't that what, that's what I do. You know, it's like, my brain first goes to thinking of all of these stuff about strategies and how am I going to do it. Have you ever done that? You know, and your brain's just going, you know, sometimes I'm praying and I'm praying and asking God to help, and all of a sudden I'm starting to figure out how I'm supposed to do it, you know, and not letting God in. So I love the fact that he was seeking God out, as well as the fact that God gave him a difficult instruction. His instruction was to tell everybody, God says no. I don't want you to have that many men. He starts out with 32,000 men, and God's like, you know, you need to do it with less men. Now, mind you, it said that these guys were like the locusts. They're just covering, you know, there's just, I can't even imagine what the numbers might have been in terms of the Midianites. My guess is if 22,000 left afraid, that 32,000 was probably a small number compared to the Midianites. So 22,000, Gideon said, the Lord tells him, and Gideon goes, hey, anybody afraid, leave. 22,000 out of there. So I love that Gideon wasn't telling God, I don't like the way you want me to do this. This is uncomfortable. You know how I'd like you to do it, God? Give me more people. 
I'd feel real good about that. Make it comfortable for me, God. I need a bigger army. Just give me a bigger army and sure, I'll go after those Midianites. How many times when we're facing challenges in our life and God's going, this is the way to go. And we're going, mm, I want you to do it another way for me, God. I don't, I don't like what you're telling me to do in order to get there. I have a whole other plan and I want you to do it my way and make it work the way that I'm going to tell you how to make it work. But I love the fact that Gideon was, talk about faith and humility and seeking God. Then he asks God, God gives him a hard thing. This is not, this is not a comfortable, this is the opposite of comfortable. And he just goes for it. And then he says in verse 4, but the Lord says to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. Then the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths and the rest got on their knees to drink. So which group do you think God picked? The 300. (laughs) So we went from 32,000 to 300 people. God says, okay, the people you're going to use are the 300 that lapped like a dog at the wa- for the water, send the rest home. So Gideon, he doesn't argue with God. He doesn't go, God, you're crazy. I don't like this. He's like, all righty, God. And sends, can you imagine facing an army and sending, you know, all but 300 people out of 32,000 home? Talk about some awesome obedience, humility, faith. And then... Um, Then we're going to go down to, uh, oops, here we go. Let's go down. Oh, and then so what God says, this is kind of cute. God says, I'm going to give you the Midianites into your hand. But if if you're worried about it, he says, what I want you to do, just in case you're having a hard time believing that I'm going to do this with 300 people. He goes, go down tonight and go listen to what they're talking about in the Midianite camp. You know, you and your servant. And you, you'll know that I'm going to do this. So, he's, so he sneaks down to the Midianite camp and he hears somebody talking about that he had a dream. That a loaf of barley fell on the tent and crushed it. And the guy says, you know what that means? It means that God's going to give us into the <laughs> Israelites' hands. I mean, so there's a couple of things like, wow, b- barley, it represented kind of an inferior grain. So they took it to mean that that's the Israelites going to destroy us. But I was thinking about this going... You still have to have a lot of faith to sit there and listen to one person say that they had a dream and go, go and go back and tell your men, we're going to kick their butt off of one dream. Do you know what I'm saying? You could seriously just go, uh, God, that was it. That was the message. You know, one guy had a dream. <laughs> That's supposed to pump me up. You really have to be in a place that you want to hear what God's saying, do you know what I mean? And, and God's encouragement to say yes to that, to, to hear that and go, wow, God's speaking. This is going to happen. But he does. He goes back. So, um, and then we're going to take a look at verse 16. It says, um, here we go. Six, geez, I can't even, I need, I can't see for beans. Um, <laughs> chapter 7, <laughs> verse 16 uh, oh, yeah, and you can see, actually, it's kind of, it says in verse 12, the Midianites and all the blah, 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 that they were as thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. I mean, 
not every person in the military had a camel. It was just kind of the hot shots that had the camels. When they were going to battle, they, they were poor people. Most people were on foot. They're not all riding camels. So if you think that the camels are so much that there's like sand on the seashore, you can kind of get an idea as to how many people they were fighting against. It had to be unbelievable. Let's go down to uh, verse 16. It says, Gideon, oh, and then Gideon, what he says is he's going to divide them. He says, we're going to divide up the 300 guys into three companies of 100 people each. And he tells them to get a horn. They call it a trumpet, but basically it's a ram's horn. And, um, and he says... Um, and empty jars and torches. So he said, okay, follow me and do what I do. In verse uh, 16, oh, yeah. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them and torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I, I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands, holding it in their right hands for the trumpets they blow and shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Now, if this, is, this must have been from Revelation, because this would not be, I don't think, somebody come up, I don't know about you guys that have ever studied battles, but would this be what you would probably come up with as far as how to attack somebody? You know, this is just sort of like, it makes not probably, you know, a ton of sense. But they did that, and what happened is the Midianites ran. And so what happens is that they fled, and they run away, and it says that uh, they chased them down. They all took off. They're killing each other. Um, the army fled. Let's actually pick it up in. Um, and then Gideon sent messengers throughout Ephraim. And the Ephraimites, he says to them, come against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan. That's in verse 24. Ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, and they killed them and wound up taking them there. So they basically, the 300, the 300 guys with the the horn and with the jars scared the Midianites. It was in the middle of the night. And most likely, I mean, it doesn't really explain why they were afraid and ran off. It said the Lord did it. Um, but trumpets were not, or the horns are not something that most, it's kind of similar to the camels. There, there weren't that many for every army. So the idea that there were 300 with those horns would have created the impression that there were many, many, many more men than what they had. And so that's what my, it's most likely what scared the Midianites. But then he had, I mean, just the whole thing, I'm sure God told him this, of having them run and then have um, the uh, people from Ephraim kind of cut off, cut them off at the Jordan for their water supply. So it was pretty, pretty awesome as far as how that worked. An incredible victory. And then God caused them to have peace for a long time in Israel. So amazing thing. Now, I want to move on to uh, Samson. If you go to uh, chapter 13, verse 2, 
Any guys would think that that was cool if you if you did that? You know, took took an army of who knows how many. I mean, it could be could be a hundred thousand people or or something with three hundred men. Um, now we're going to go to Samson, and the story of Samson, I think. It's got kind of some different things because you've all heard of the incredible strength of Samson. It's, you know, even people that never really heard of the Bible have heard about Samson. There's cartoons too, aren't there? Like lots of Samson cartoons. I think the kids like the idea of Samson. You know, and you really see how God worked in Samson's life, but it's also kind of a sad story in some ways. And so one of the things we see in this with Gideon and with Samson both is that God works where we let him work. And God works in the areas that we let him in. Because Samson did amazing things, but he also had kind of a sad life in many ways. But what happened, just to set you up again as far as this story, Israel turned away from God, and they were being dominated by the Philistines. And then Manoah uh, was a man who was childless. And, of course, a lot of great people are born, it seems like, from um, couples that are childless for a while, and God blesses them with a child. And so an angel of the Lord comes to his wife and speaks to her and says that she's going to have a child and, um, and that he is to be a Nazarite, which means that um, in the book of Numbers, it, it, what that stood for is somebody that made a vow to God and separated themselves to God, and they didn't have alcohol and they didn't cut their hair. Normally, in the book of Numbers, it was just something that people did for a short period of time. It wasn't something that you did for your whole life. It was like a, a time of separation where you devoted yourself to God. And so it actually means, um, the word means a dedicated one or somebody separated out. So what God told, what the angel um, told her is that her child would have this, would live like this his whole life, that the will of God was for Samson to, to have this as a lifelong calling on his life. And it says that um, God's will, too, is that he was, the prophecy is that he's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines because that's who, who was oppressing them at the time. So it's kind of cool. Um, Manoah, so the wife comes back and tells Manoah, and he says, and he prays that the angel will come back and teach them how to raise this child according to the Lord, which I thought was just really sweet. He's like praise and goes, God, I want to know how I can teach this, um, this child. So the angel comes back and talks to them and kind of reiterates things and says that he's going to be called for his life. Don't cut his, you know, he's not supposed to cut his hair and shouldn't have any alcohol. She shouldn't have any alcohol for their whole lives. Um, anyway, so let's take it. Um, oh, and then what's kind of cool is that they offer a sacrifice and again, God answers by a fire, burns up the sacrifice, and then they s sat there watching while the angel travels up to heaven on the flame. It's just right in front of their eyes. So they were pretty blessed by that. A little afraid, too. But, um, and then it says that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, and we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 14 and verse 1. As you know, and I just want to say this again, is that in the Old Testament, People did not have Holy Spirit unconditionally. They were body and soul human beings. 
they lost spirit when Adam sinned and was disobedient. So what happened is the only time that they would have connection with God is when somebody was walking with God and called of God, God would put his spirit on that person, and it would be kind of a temporary situation that that person would be able to hear from God and walk with God. Today, it says because of Jesus Christ, every single one of us can believe and receive Holy Spirit and hear from God all the time, 24-7. So... Um, so that's why I keep saying through these points, oh, the Spirit of the Lord was upon them, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So in chapter 14, and what we're going to see in Samson's life is that there's places Samson was letting God in, and there's places Samson was so out in left field that caused him a lot of pain and anguish. So his life was very much a mixed bag where, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about God, we have this, this black and white thinking, thinking we're supposed to either be we're either perfect and God's working with us or, you know, like we're doing everything, walking with God, going to church every week, reading our Bibles, et cetera, and God's there, or, you know, we're screwing up somehow and God took a hike. And that's not how God works. God, what we're going to see in this, God shows up in the parts of our lives that we let him in and he's not, doesn't show up in the places we don't invite him in. And so Samson had some problems with women. And um, he should have taken the dating workshop, as you're going to see. He really has some boundary issues. And so uh, we're going to take a look at Judges 14. In verse 1, it says, Samson went to Timnah and saw there was a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So this is not good. God says, you can read it all. We've read it all through these scriptures. God speaks very loudly that he does not want them marrying unbelievers. There's no Holy Spirit. He knows that when they do that, it gets them way off track from walking with God. And so God's been very vocal. So Samson knows this. He's read the Bible. He knows the scripture. He knows the teachings. But he's like, he sees somebody. He's like, I got to have her. And we're going to see. He's just like little... little, uh, self-control issues, um, little lust issues. So um, his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. (laughs) Now, (laughs) now, yeah, he's a little little obsessed. Uh, And then it says, there's a verse that says that they didn't know that, that God was, that God was going to do something with this. And, but the thing is, is people, this is a, this is an, a figure of speech. E.W. Bullinger says, talks about, it's the idiom of permission. As you see in the New Testament, they didn't really understand Satan that much. And so over and over and over again, you see that the workings of Satan, because they didn't understand spiritual things until Jesus Christ, oftentimes were accredited with God. Because you're going to see by some of the things that happen that that it's not, a lot of the stuff that he does is not really according to God's will, but God still uses it to do something. There's a big difference between doing something that God says, this is my will, do it, versus you do something that's opposite God's will, you get yourself in a big fat mess, and God's like, okay, we can do something with this. It's almost like there's, God, you know, it's like you've got God's primary will and you've got God doing a mop-up afterwards. 
oftentimes when we're not doing what God's telling us to do and we're doing something else, it's not like God can't bring something out of it, but there's often very dire costs to our lives. God wants to work with us. So it's not like he says, I'm really mad at you because you didn't listen to me, so bye-bye. You don't really see that. You see where God's going, oh, you just did something really hurtful to you. I'll still be there, but sometimes the consequences are costly, and sometimes they endure for a long time, and we're going to see this throughout uh, Samson's life. Um, Okay. So, yeah. Let's go to oops, uh, verse 5. And one of the things that we see um, in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. They approached the vin- vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Now, I'd, I'd say most of us can't probably tear a goat, let alone a lion. So, I mean, I'm just, honestly, tear, he's like, oh, they act like the tearing the goat was easy. I'm like, what do you mean, tearing a goat, <laughs> like, with your bare hands? How easy is that, exactly? But what you see is that the Spirit of God comes on Samson and gives him supernatural strength. There are instances And it is available where God does things through Holy Spirit that are beyond what what you would have the ability to do in the senses. In this particular instance, God worked with phenomenal strength. You see it when people raise the dead. Raising the dead goes against the laws of nature, doesn't it? Well, tearing a lion apart goes against the laws of nature, doesn't it? (laughs) So this power, the Holy Spirit, gave him the strength to do this. Now, you see, and it talks about this in the New Testament, Satan and his demons can do the same thing. You see the man of the tombs and the supernatural power. So supernatural power has to come from spirit of either God or Satan. If you're seeing physical strength, that defies the laws of nature and the universe, it's spiritual. That's what's causing it. So, any guys here would think that that was a cool gift that God gave him if you could tear a lion? That's cool. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It was just like, I think you'd feel a little badass, wouldn't you? I think it was kind of funny he didn't tell his parents. And so, I don't know, part of me kind of thinks maybe, because this is the place that Samson had faith, was in the spirit of God and strength. You could see Samson trusted God in this area and believed that God would be there for him over and over and over again in the area of strength. And, God's, and that was God's gifting and calling to him in terms of how he was going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. The, um, let's see. Okay. But, you know, it makes me think, because this is probably the, like the place he really did, well, it is the place he let God in. Um, but maybe, you know, that he didn't tell his mom and dad. Maybe there was even some humility in it. You never know. Of course, he kind kind of sounds cocky in some of these other places, so who knows. Um, 
So then it says he went down and he talked with the woman and he liked her. Okay. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. That sounds disgusting, doesn't it? <laughs> that just sounds so gross. I'm hoping that the carcass was picked clean and it was just dry bones and there were just a honeycomb because the picture I had in my brain was like, why would you eat that? <laughs> but um, Anyway. So there's a lion's carcass, and some bees went in there and made some honey. And so he decides to eat it. And then when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate it too. But, they did, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now, his father went to see the woman, and Samson made a feast there. And it was customary for the bridegrooms when – it was customary for bridegrooms. So kind of what they did in this day, their weddings were – where you're married but you didn't consummate for a while. There was a big long party and it went on for days. So they're, they're called husband and wife, but they, they haven't done the deed yet. So um, anyway, so it says when he, so he gives them this party and then it says, which was very common in these days to do riddles at parties. It was kind of a fun entertainment party, you know, little party trick. And in verse 12, it says, let me tell you a riddle, Samson says to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. They say, tell us the riddle. Let's hear it. And then he says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not get the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we'll burn you and your father's household to death. Jeez. Yeah, don't be having too much mercy for these people. And then it says, uh, did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. So this is like, come on, this is really stupid that he's trusting her. Um, but I haven't even explained it to my father or mother. So why would I explain it to you? She cried for seven days of the feast. Jeez. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because he continu she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. And so, anyway, so basically they tell him the riddle. And he's like, oh, if you haven't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't know that. Talking about her. <laughs> <laughs> Then it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he goes and kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes. So, um, to <laughs> and he gets mad. And then he goes back, and they give his wife to his friend. So this, like, sucks a lot. So he's definitely got issues with trusting the, you know, the wrong people, uh, you know, and not... Yeah, all kinds of things. Anyway, so let's go down to, so, oh, and then how he gets back at them. He's like, okay, I got a right to get mad and, um, about this. So he ties 300 foxes in pairs, lights them on fire to destroy all their grain, and throws them in the grain. This is like, <laughs> it's kind of a, wow, I, you know, he, I don't know why he did that that way, but um, it's definitely dramatic. And so they get really mad because their whole grain supply is wiped out because he did this because, you know, he's wanting to get back at them. So they come and they're about to grab him to kill him. And then what happens um, is it says that uh, that they, it says, <laughs> it says that, that 
they, the Philistines tell um, the men of Judah, and then they, the men of Judah are afraid of the Philistines, so they send 3,000 of their own people to go get Samson, and they're mad at Samson. Like, Samson's called to, God said that he was called to destroy the Philistines for them. And yet they go, and they're really mad that the Philistines are mad, certainly not trusting God that, um, in this at all. And so he talk, they talk to him and get mad and go, why are you doing this? And he agrees to go with them only if they won't kill him themselves. And so he goes with them, and as soon as the Philistines come along, uh, it says the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and the things that were tying him up, he just breaks them, it says, like, like a thread with the fire. That's how easy the bands come off of him. And he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of an ass. He said, so I made an ass out of you. And so, <laughs> so he kills a thousand of the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Again, supernatural power. Um, yeah. And then he gets, then he's got f- problems with women again. So let's go to uh, chapter 16. We know the Samson and Delilah. He falls in love with Delilah. And then they go to, uh, some of the Philistines go to Delilah and give her, say, we'll give you 1,100 shekels of silver, which is a lot of money. If you remember Joseph and what he was sold, that that would mean that for 1,100 shekels, you could buy 275 slaves. So it was a large sum of money. Um, And then we're going to go in chapter 16. So they go find out where his strength comes from. And in verse 6, it says, 16 verse 6, says, so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength <laughs> and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistine brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied, tied him with them. The men hidden in the room, she called to them, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to the flame. So his, the secret of his strength was not discovered. And so then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool out of me. You lied to me. Come now. Tell me how you can be tied. Now, there's, there's a whole bunch of things here. I tell you, he really needed the dating workshop. So why would he lie to her? Like, talk about boundaries. You get to say what you want to share and don't share. So you think about what was going on with him to the degree that he's afraid to tell her none of your business. Do you know what I mean? Like, really, why wouldn't you be able to say that to somebody? Um, <clears throat> kind of thing. But what he does is you can tell he wants to make her happy, wants to please her and try and make her feel appeased instead of standing up for himself in it, and he tells her a lie. Now, she completely betrays him and... So what would you think he should do? Get the heck out of Dodge. Really, how nutso is it that he sticks around after that? She was just set him up to kill him, and he just sticks around, and she goes, come on, tell me. Please tell me. So he tells her another story, and she sets him up again, and she gets really mad, and then he does it again. I'm like, man, you know, talk about being desperate. It's just sad. It's just sad that he valued himself so little. Here he is, a guy that the Spirit of God is working with him so powerfully that physically he accomplished all these things, and yet he can't even value himself enough to be able to walk away from some woman just because she's pretty. 
wow, it's just sad. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that he just didn't see himself the way God saw him in this. Or, or that he's not in touch with reality, that this is a dishonest, deceitful person. Why would you want to be married or have anything to do with somebody like that? There's lots of pretty girls. You can get anybody being able to tear a line apart with your hands. You have your pick of women. <laughs> so anyway, so then he says, oh, you can weave the braids. He gives them all these other silly reasons, and then she gets really, really mad. We're going to go down to um, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Now, you know it's funny because everybody seems to interpret this as if his hair was his strength. No, what it says is his hair was his covenant with God. His hair was his promise to God that he committed himself. So for him to cut that, he was disregarding his vow to God. So it had nothing to do with the power. His strength is in his hair. It's that he walked away with his covenant to God. That gave, it was God that gave him the strength. And he walked away from his lifelong vow to God by cutting his hair. That's what happened. So then we see in verse 18... When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, he sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands, having put him to sleep on her lap. just saddens me when I just see the picture of how he was just so desperate. In verse 19, Having put him to sleep in her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids in his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. In verse 20, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord left him, which is really sad, that he didn't even know that he had violated his covenant or even considered that. You know, like he was oblivious to the fact that he had lost God's, you know, blessing and had sold himself out in that. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison, which is a really, it's kind of women's work. But talk about, my God, this powerful man is hauled away with his eyes gouged out and made to grind grain. So then they're having a big uh, deal, and it says, um, with the ru all the rulers of the Philistines, and they're offering a sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and they're just celebrating, you know, with Samson there. You can imagine how he must have felt having them sing this, because he's a man that walked with God and saw God's power and loved God. And in verse 24, it says, when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. They're in high spirits. They shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them, which is pretty sad and tragic, too. I don't know what that would have been, but I'm assuming it was humiliating. And then in the pillars, etc., I want to go down to everybody's watching. And there's thousands of people in there, and they're all the leaders of the Philistines. And then in verse 28, this is the bottom for Samson. He was, you know, born to walk with God and to have all this strength, and it was just over. Oh, and I forgot to say, too, right before that, I forgot the whole thing. He was sleeping with a prostitute, and they almost got him. I mean, like, this is like, yeah, not not good, you know. I mean, it's not the will of God to sleep with prostitutes. You can read the Bible cover to cover. God's very vocal about that. So you kind of see he's really out of control in the whole women department. And then it says, um, in verse 28, it says, And Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And with let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the central pillars which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on another. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. So, you know, it's interesting because there was a victory in that for sure. But you got to think, if he was not captured and imprisoned for all those years, how, me- how much more would, could he have done? If he, like, God gave him incredible physical strength with his Holy Spirit. If he could kill a thousand people with a jawbone of an ass, what could he have done for God if he hadn't gotten so sidetracked with the women? It just ruined his life. To me, it's like, What's amazing is you see God was still loving and present with him in the areas that Samson was letting God work. But his personal life was horrible. He died lonely, sad, nobody loving him, trusting women over and over again that had, were so not for him. What could he have done? What was God calling him to? God called him to be a Nazarite his whole life. God called him to destroy the Philistines you know, there's no way that the will of God was for him to have his eyes gouged out and be, like, on display for people to mock him. And to have nobody ever, you know, for him to give his heart to women that would just walk all over it, stamp on it, not appreciate him or who he was, and to take advantage of that. That is not the will of God for anyone's life. It's heartbreaking. So, in this, between, you know, you got two very contrasting stories but the themes that we see are that God is always willing. God is always willing to be there for us, but we have free will. Each and every one of us gets to choose, where do you want God in your life? Are there places that God is calling you, like Gideon, that you're saying, I'm not good enough, I can't do it? You know, at first, of course, he rose up to the occasion for sure. You know, or are there places like Samson, perhaps, where God wants to take you to something great? Where is God calling you to in your life as far as where there's great victory and deliverance? What's more to come that God's encouraging you for? You know, to do might, because God can do amazing, mighty things, crazy, beyond senses kind of things, because he's God Almighty in our lives when we seek him out and when we have faith. 
So I just encourage you to be thinking about that in this week and to be seeking the Lord in areas. I want to be in a place where I'm inviting him in everywhere, where there's no place I'm not going, Lord, you got access. You know, I want you in every part of me. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love and for your goodness and for what you are able to do in us that you really do desire for us to have life that's a blessed in every place, not just in some places that we include you, but you really want our lives to be full and rich in, in every part of life, to walk in your strength, to walk in your power, to have awesome relationships um, that are safe. No Delilah's for us. We don't, you don't want that for us. You want us to be with people that support us and cheer us on and help us to be closer to you and not pull us away. It is a trick of Satan that he is always trying to fight to pull us away from you, God. Help us to not give in to it. Help us to not allow the devil to disempower us the way that he did Samson. But that we are yours, God, all of us. Help us to bring every part of us to you and to your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.